Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Good morning, everyone. Um, my name's Dr. Julia Hempenstall. I'm a GP in Wiltshire, and I'm also part of the Wessex LMC's GP Education Rolling Program. And we're absolutely thrilled that you've joined us this morning for an hour's webinar. Uh, we've got two fantastic speakers uh, that I'm going to introduce you. Joe's just doing a bit of technical in the background, getting the screen ready for us. We've got a presentation about Down syndrome, which has been very much in the news through October as Down Awareness, uh, Down Syndrome Awareness Month, and also recently in the media in the last few days. Um, we've got Dr. Anjali Chandra, who's a local GP, and we've got Alice Osborne who's one of the managers at the Portsmouth Down Syndrome Association and what they're going to do is share a presentation with us and because of national lockdown they're in separate separate places um, so they're co-presenting from different areas so um, please be kind with them if they need to, uh, to deal with children uh, or anything along the way but the idea is, is that we're going to have a presentation as you're listening to it, if you think about questions that you've got, please put, it in, put them in the chat because it's really useful to have that train of thought during the presentation. And then what Angela and Alice are going to do at the end, we're going to address each of those questions. It'd be fantastic if everyone here is able to put on their videos so we can have a conversation at that point. But um, now I'm going to hand over to Angela and Alice. Uh, and um, thanks very much for coming along today, guys. Thank you. Um, Angie, did you want to start with your introduction and then I'll jump in? Yeah, so uh, like Julia said, I'm a GP in Havant. Um, I qualified in 2014. Um, as part of the charity Portsmouth Down Syndrome Association, I'm part of the New Parent and Community Committee, um, uh, which involves uh, meeting uh, new parents, uh, not necessarily new parents, but parents who have uh, uh, children with Down Syndrome, either prenatally or postnatally, uh, which again has been tricky during uh, lockdown and COVID. And uh, my son Dexter, he has Down syndrome, and we were a prenatal diagnosis. And I'll tell you a little bit more about him uh, throughout the presentation. So I'm Alice uh, by trade. I'm a social worker, and I've always worked within learning disability services. So for about 15 years, um, I'm also a parent. I have three little people, and my middle son Ted, um, who's now three, was postnatally diagnosed with Down syndrome. So as well as being practitioners in our own right, I think it's a really interesting um, perspective to, to hear that difference. Um, so a little bit about our charity. Whilst we're called Portsmouth, we actually support families across the South um, East Hampshire area. Um, and I suppose the main sort of driving philosophy for us is that we know that our young people can succeed when they're given the right opportunities with the right support. Um, they, we believe that they deserve the same opportunities as their typical peers and of course the right to experience success um, as their peers. And of course, when children with Down syndrome are given the opportunities to participate and to be fully um, included, we know that the whole community benefits. So that's really um, a, a really important part of um, where we're coming from with this, really. Um, so if we could have the next slide, please. So what you will see, and I think it's really important, and I, I, we'll talk through the, the images in a moment, but what we could show you would be cuddly, gorgeous images of children. Um, because children with Down syndrome, like all children, are, um, and I can see the slide now, thank you Joanna. Thank you. Um, children with Down syndrome, like all children, are um, wonderful but, and pretty special. But what I really want you to take away from this is to kind of consider what your viewpoint about Down syndrome is and then maybe see it um, and see these adults as who they are and strong and capable and achievers. Um, these images are taken from the Radical Beauty Movement, which is an international movement starring world-class photographers who are participating um, 
in different images. Um, it's um, as you think you can see they're inspiring and it's well worth um, a look on Instagram or whichever. Um, in the top right picture we have Dominika Lawson who um, runs a catering business in Brighton. The bottom right image is of a gentleman called Udi and I just think it's a really um, fabulous picture. Um, and on the left is Dooney who's about 44, um, works in a restaurant and is married. All achievements that all of us um, strive to really. Um, so next slide and over to you Anjali to tell us a bit about Down Syndrome. Okay, so we're going to go back to basics a little bit. I'm sure we all remember some of this from medical school. So Down syndrome is a genetic condition caused by the trisomy on the 21st chromosome. Um, so a bit of basic biology, we have 46 chromosomes and uh, 23 pairs. Um, and most cases of Down syndrome are not inherited. So when the condition is caused by trisomy 21, the chromosomal abnormality occurs as a random event during the formation of reproductive cells in the parent. The abnormality usually occurs in egg cells, but it occasionally does occur in sperm cells. So an error in cell division called non-disjunction results in a reproductive cell with an abnormal number of chromosomes. For example, an egg or a sperm may contain an extra chromosome 21, and if one of these atypical reproductive cells contributes to the genetic makeup of the child, the child will then have an extra chromosome 21 in each of the body cells. So there are three main types. So I've just spoken about non-disjunction, which is the most common type, 94%. Um, and that's what my son Dexter has. Uh, the next one is translocation, 4%. So people with translocation can inherit this condition from the unaffected parent. So in this case, the parent carries a rearrangement of genetic material between chromosome 21 and another chromosome. So this rearrangement is called a balanced translocation and no genetic material is gained or lost in a balanced translocation. So these chromosomal changes usually don't cause any health problems. However, when this, uh, this translocation is passed onto the next generation, it can become unbalanced. And so people who in inherit an unbalanced translocation involving chromosome 21 may have an extra genetic material uh, from chromosome 21 and that then causes Down syndrome. And then the bottom one mosaic, uh, 2%, uh, again, like the non-disjunction, this is not inherited. This occurs as a random event during cell division in early, in early fetal development. And then as a result, some of the body cells, not all of them, have uh, the usual two copies of the chromosome 21, and the other cells have three copies of the chromosome 21. And at the bottom, just a little bit of background, a bit of history about um, where the fact that Dr. John Langdon Down described the characteristics of the syndrome, which then led to the name of the syndrome. Um, I appreciate that you all are medical um, by background, um, but I'm not. And I always think it's really good to give a, um, a visual description. And I think when we think about mosaic um, Down syndrome, it's really helpful to consider a swimming pool and the tiling. Um, and if you consider that the white tiles would have um, would be the cells that have that trisomy and therefore have the majority, whereas you will still have cells such as the blue lines on um, a swimming pool and those markers are those tiles that wouldn't have it. Um, and I think it's really helpful to consider that therefore that it can affect differently for all people with Down syndrome. So these statistics are taken from our National Down Syndrome Association. Um, and they basically point out that one in every 1,000 babies that is born will have Down syndrome. So that's around 750 babies born within the UK. Um, and approximately 40,000 people with Down syndrome will be living in the UK. Now, contrary to belief, most children with Down syndrome are born to mothers younger than 35 because this is the age group that are giving birth most frequently. Um, however, there is an increase in the chance of having a child with Down syndrome. 
as the mother ages, people with Down uh, with syndrome will have a learning disability. Um, and the learning disability will affect their ability to learn. It does not mean that they can't learn. And we'll talk about this a little bit more later. Of course, like most of the population, people with Down syndrome will learn at school. They will have interests, hobbies, relationships um, and friends, same as anyone else. Today, the average life expectancy of a person with Down syndrome is between 50 and 60, with a small number of people living into their 70s. Um, and it's important to note as well that a pregnancy with Down syndrome can be terminated until the 40th week. Um, and as Julia mentioned earlier, there's been quite a lot of press regarding this recently, as there's currently a high court um, a consideration going on. Um, she's been launched by a young lady herself with Down syndrome regarding this and whether or not it's discriminatory to babies and children and adults with Down syndrome. Down syndrome is the main cause of intellectual disability across the UK and other developed countries. So the extra chromosome can of course um, create a degree of learning disability and this will vary from person to person, some health conditions and some common features. What's really important to remember though is like anybody else we are all individuals and so what conditions somebody may have will vary um, from other people. People with and children with Down syndrome will all vary in their abilities, interests, personalities, the same as all people and some people will be better at sport than others and that is true of people with Down syndrome as well. Um, just like the rest of the population, a person with Down syndrome will inherit their family's characteristics and will look more like family members than they will other people with Down syndrome. And I think it's really important to remember that just because they have that 47th chromosome, um, all 47 of those chromosomes come from their mum and their dad. So they are more likely to look like their parents and their siblings and follow family traits than they are of other people who happen to have the same condition. Um, children with Down syndrome will all have learning difficulties, but this can vary, as we've mentioned before, from mild to very severe. Um, at around the age of five, so starting school, some of our most able children are often functioning very close to the average level for their age. But at the other end of the ability range, some of these children may have more profound or multiple needs um, linked to dual diagnosis, um, such as autism or epilepsy. Although Down syndrome is caused by genetic factors, as we all know, environmental influences play a huge part as does the upbringing um, and a critical role in their development, um, as with any child. So it's really important that our children get access to that um, early intervention, as is always recommended. And over to you, Anjali. Thank you, Alice. OK, so I'm just going to quickly talk about some possible health conditions associated with Down syndrome. So there is an increased tendency uh, towards autoimmune conditions uh, and also leukemia. Um, and we've got to be aware that uh, children with um, Down syndrome can present atypically with regards to leukemia. Um, so usually uh, around birth or when they're very young, when they're neonates, they should have a blood test uh, that can look into their risk of having leukemia when they're older. Um, uh, I think it's associated with the blood film. Um, thyroid disorders. So uh, children um, and adults with um, Down syndrome need to have regular blood tests to monitor uh, for uh, thyroid disorders. Uh, mainly it's hypothyroidism, which is more common. Um, so we need to have increased vigilance from caregivers to monitor for uh, possible signs of this. So sim uh, similar symptoms to people without, without Down syndrome. Um, so poor, poor tolerability to the cold, tiredness, constipation, depression, weight gain. Uh, congenital heart conditions, so um, holes in the heart or more complex uh, heart conditions. So about roughly half of the babies, uh, half babies born with uh, Down syndrome will have a heart defect. This also means half of them don't. Um, we we're uh, lucky with Dexter, they didn't particularly have a, a major heart condition. 
but less than one in five have a serious problem. And where children do have a, a heart condition, it may be relatively mild or it can be more uh, serious and complicated, uh, needing, uh, meaning that the child will need surgery. Uh, joint problems, this is uh, linked to the tone and mobility. Um, so uh, adults with uh, Down syndrome and children sometimes can have pain in their knees and hips. Um, adults are more prone to osteoporosis uh, because they're more likely to have a lower bone de uh, mineral density and therefore their bones are more fragile and more likely to break. Gastrointestinal issues, so it's not just the muscles that we see on the outside, it's actually muscles uh, of our organs as well on the inside that can be impacted and have tone issues which can lead to constipation, as I mentioned earlier, but also reflux, poor weight gain, duodenal uh, atresia and Hirschsprungs. Uh, respiratory issues, so sleep apnea, chest infection, colds, that sort of thing. They've got smaller airways. Um, so obstructive sleep apnea is, relatively, is a relatively common condition in people with Down syndrome. Um, so the walls of the thorax relax and narrow during sleep, interrupting normal breathing. And this leads to um, regular interrupted sleep. So similar with people without Down syndrome who have obstructive sleep apnea. So it has a massive impact on the quality of life, um, which can then also lead on to uh, increased risk of developing other uh, conditions. So uh, snoring, snoring, noisy and laboured breathing um, and short repeated periods at night time and the breathing is interrupted by gasping or snorting. Um, so my son Dexter had annual sleep studies at the moment to keep an eye out for that because obviously if he's not getting enough oxygen to his brain at night time that will then impact on his ability to develop. Um, we also should be monitoring for metabolic syndrome, so diabetes, uh, high blood pressure, obesity, all these things as you all know, know put, uh, put people at risk of um, heart disease and stroke. Um, so there's a lot of regular screening which means lots of appointments for families um, so we should be following the recommendations from DSMIG, which stands for Down Syndrome Medical Interest Group. Um, and the key thing I think we all need to remember as GPs, as doctors, is diagnostic overshadowing. So please don't use Down Syndrome as a scapegoat <coughs> going on with the, with the child or the adult. Next slide, please. I'll pass back to Alice. So um, visual impairment, again, um, would like to explore it in a little bit more detail. Um, this information is taken from Professor Maggie Woodhouse based at Cardiff University who is an expert in the field of Down syndrome and vision and has done a huge amount of research um, and has shown that all people with Down syndrome will have poorer visual acuity and many will have difficulties with vision which you would you know use glasses and and such for but vision is poorer in people with Down syndrome um, than in the typical people for, um, in typical people of the same age Age, and it will remain poorer even when they have glasses to correct the short or long-sightedness um, and this information is taken from the, the National Down Syndrome Association and Professor Muggie Woodhouse's findings. Um, a study completed in 2012 showed that the biggest factor for this poor vision is actually down to the optical quality of children's eyes and, and adults as well and so of course there's regular eye examinations and really close monitoring for this. Um, I always like a visual and I think it's really important to, to actually see what we mean by visual acuity. So the top image would be clear visual acuity, which um, should be how the majority of people will view the world. And visual acuity in a person with Down syndrome would be the bottom image. And as you can see, the contrast has changed and it's all slightly different. But 
it's really interesting, I think, if we consider, you know, in the top, in the bottom of the top image, you can see that there's a wall, which therefore would infer there might be a drop on the bottom. But of course, in the lower image, that's much more complicated to see and more difficult to see because the resolution is so different. Um, so, of course, visual acuity is just something that could impact in lots of different things. So it's always worth remembering that. Um, next slide, please. Particularly in a school environment. I know when I was at school, we had blue line paper and you often still find blue line paper on A4 books. And in the, uh, the left image at the top would be the, how you or I with, with good visual acuity would see it. But of course, on the right, those lines almost fade away to nothing. Um, and of course, if you have a child who's um, doing, not doing so well in school because they can't write on the lines, they can't see the lines. Um, so it's really important. And um, there was a large project run by the National Down Syndrome Association about big and bold, which of course will be these nice thick black lines um, at the bottom there. Um, so next slide, please. So we can help by recognising that visual acuity is a difficulty faced by all people with Down syndrome and again this less sharp contrast and less fine details and remembering that people with Down syndrome are visual learners which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, we need to then before be providing images and text that big and bold um, everywhere so just thinking about that we would recommend a minimum font size of 18 um, so we're just thinking about that when we're you know when you are sending out letters to people um, just considering that in terms of what information is being shared and such really um, over to you Angelia next slide please Joanna Thank okay you. so hearing impairments uh, at least half of children with Down syndrome will have a significant hearing impairment so sensory neural hearing loss, as we all know, affects the, uh, the cochlear nerve and the vestibular cochlear nerve, rather, and it can affect 20% uh, of people with Down syndrome. And then conductive deafness is more associated with otitis media <coughs> or glue ear. And levels of hearing can actually fluctuate <coughs> throughout the year um, and from day to day. So uh, my son Dexter, his hearing tests tend to be quite normal in the summer um, when the weather is good, yet in the winter he does have mild glue ear, which can then impact on his hearing. And what I've been explained uh, to is the fact that the anatomy of uh, the, um, the ear canal is slightly different. And so they're slightly more horizontal rather than tilted. And consequently, the drainage of the ear canal um, is not as efficient. Consequently, um, it takes longer to uh, recover from otitis media or other ear infections. Um, and that's why, which can also then further impact um, children and adults hearing. So speech and language. Um People with Down syndrome will have better receptive and expressive skills, although both may show delay. Um, and of course, that means that people with Down syndrome are going to understand a lot more of the information they um, express themselves. And there's lots of different reasons for this. Um, but I think it's really important to highlight that they will, um, that people with Down from the short-term auditory memory, um, they're often not heard correctly, linked to hearing difficulties, um, through to being stored, repeated, and then used effectively. This means, of course, that being able to listen, process, hold, understand and record information is very difficult. Um, we also talk about, you know, I'm sure you've been listening to us now for about 20 minutes and we live in a world which is a incredibly linguistic environment. And for somebody with a social communication difficulty, that makes it incredibly challenging. Um, to be able to have that many words and have to process them and it often means that the support or being in a school environment and such is very intense um, because you have they are often having to process more language than that of a typical peer um, which of course is immensely tiring um, there's also difficulties linked with tone and coordination around less coordinated mouth and tongue muscles which can of course cause some difficulty in forming words and is 
So, um, so basically, uh, what Alice was uh, saying about this slide was the fact that um, uh, the sport can be, uh, it can be mentally tiring for people with Down syndrome to uh, formulate words to communicate, um, and so it's a, it's really important to have give them time to listen, process, hold, and understand and record that information. And multitasking can be very difficult as well. So I'll talk about screening and pregnancy. So the NHS offers a variety of screening programs. Uh, I'm sure we've all heard of uh, the combined screening test. Uh, so this is made up uh, of a blood test um, and um, the measurement of the neck uh, during the scan, during the dating scan. This is actually a voluntary test. And I think a lot of parent mothers do not realize that they can opt in or opt out of the screening program. I think a lot of uh, parents-to-be think that this is part of part of the, the care and you know it's compulsory. So this, uh, this, this one tests for Down syndrome, Edwards and Patows, um, and it's available between 10 and 14 weeks of pregnancy. Um, so as a result of this test, we get uh, women get a chance. So it's, it's a screening test and not a diagnostic test. And the next one that is offered is a quadruple test. Uh, this is offered to mothers between 14 and 20 weeks of pregnancy if they're too late for the, the earlier combined test. This is not as accurate, uh, and, um, and again, it screens for chance, it's not diagnostic. So the reason it's called the quad test is because it measures for alpha fetoprotein, human chorionic gonadotrophin, estriol, and inhibit A. So um, then there are the two diagnostic tests, the amniocentesis and chorionic that are sampling. So one in 200 women, 0.5%, who have a diagnostic test will miscarry as a result of the test. So Obviously, it's a, it can be a quite a difficult decision to whether to have this further testing. So chorionic villus sampling, as uh, most of you may remember, uh, is usually done between 11 and 14 weeks of pregnancy. Uh, finally, needle is put through the mother's abdomen to take a tiny sample of tissue from the placenta. And then the cells from the tissue are tested for Down syndrome, Edwards and Patau syndrome again. Um, Amniocentesis is done after 15 weeks, and again, the fine needle has gone into the abdomen, well, the abdomen into the uterus this time to collect some amniotic fluid, and then the fluid is tested. Um, so a small number of women who have this diagnostic test will then find out their baby has one of these conditions. Um, and then there are two options. Some women will continue the pregnancy uh, and prepare for their child with the condition, and others will decide not to continue the pregnancy and have the condition. And then we have non-invasive prenatal testing. Um, this is a, a fairly new thing. Uh, it's been in the UK since 2012, uh, mainly in the private sector. So this is also known as a cell-free DNA uh, screening test. Um, this is a maternal blood test. So unlike there's no risk of miscarriage associated with it. Uh, but this, again, it's a screening test, not diagnostic. A blood sample sent to the laboratory and the cell-free DNA material is extracted um, and analysed. Most of the DNA comes from the mother, but some of, there's a small uh, amount that comes from the baby's placenta, which is then able to be tested. Um, so the NIPT does not give a yes-no answer about the chromosomal conditions, like I said, but it does have, uh, large-scale studies have shown it has a high detection rate for Down syndrome. Uh, so it's very sensitive for screening for Down syndrome. Uh, it can look for Edwards and Patau's, but it's not as reliable for these conditions. Um, 
so I think it's very important at this stage, um, I know most of us uh, tend to see the women afterwards, but to actually congratulate the women and family if they want to continue the pregnancy. Uh, personally, for us, the right choice was uh, to go for the non-invasive prenatal, um, non prenatal testing. Um, and we were offered this on the NHS because um, I, I got the high chance after combined tests. Um, currently, though, there's no clinical pathway from the RCOG or other organising bodies for what to do if the family uh, decides to continue the pregnancy. There's lots of guidance from Down Syndrome Association, but no specific pathways as yet. Um, and with regards to the non-invasive prenatal testing, there is still um, uh, some discussion about whether it should be uh, included as part of the national um, screening program. Okay, um, so useful considerations for children. So as I said, the Down Syndrome Medical Interest Group and Down Syndrome Association have really clear surveillance guidelines, which is really helpful. So as I mentioned earlier, thyroid, vision, hearing, heart, uh, general development, this all, we all need to uh, think about these as uh, to be screened for. Neck instability, it's the um, atlantoaxial joint in the neck um, that can cause problems in some children. So it's, it's case by case whether children need to have um, an x-ray of their neck. I know uh, trampolines have been um, considered uh, possibly dangerous in some children with Down syndrome. It's not a routine that children with Down syndrome need to have a neck x-ray, but in some cases it can be helpful. But as we know, x-rays are just snapshots, so they, can, they can't always reveal whether it's going to be problematic. Um, so children and adults can sometimes have um, neck pain associated with this. Growth charts, this is vital. In the red book that the parents get, uh, it's really important to make sure they've got the right growth charts for children with Down syndrome. We were really lucky with Dexter and his red book, he had the right growth charts. And it's not just growth charts. In the book, there's also um, a, a sort of developmental timescale, which is really helpful for parents about you know, typical developer, uh, development and um, uh, you know, timescales they're expecting. And then people with Down, children with Down syndrome, what to expect with them. And there's other information in there and other resources associated with their growth charts that can also go into the red book, which I feel is really empowering for, patient, uh, for patients and parents. Carers need. So this is thinking about mum, dad, older siblings and their needs. Is it recorded on our um, computer system that they have um, a sibling with Down syndrome? Um, because so often families are led to believe that therapy and teaching is makes the biggest difference whereas actually the biggest influence on a child's progress comes from the family so from being a much loved member of an ordinary happy family and being involved and included makes the biggest difference so if we could take care of the family as well that'd be really helpful and this idea comes from professor sue Blackley, who um, as alice mentioned earlier leads uh, is a lead for down syndrome edu education internationally um, and then disability benefits most uh, children uh, are entitled to disability living allowance from the age of one and as GPs we can help them by providing um, supporting letters or you know, uh, clinic letters and things like that. Uh, so consideration for assessment of children with Down syndrome. Um, for us as GPs the first time we may meet uh, parents and baby is at the six-week check. Um, again it's a a wonderful opportunity to congratulate the parents um, on having their baby as we would with any other child. Um, it might be worth considering a longer appointment because maybe they're not in a congratulatory mood and they're having difficult, a difficult time um, understanding what's going on, particularly if it's a postnatal diagnosis. 
Uh, poor temper uh, temperature regulation. So some children may not even develop a uh, temperature or conversely may be hypothermic. This, this is thought to be related to having a poor control of their systemic uh, vascular resistance. Um, so sometimes, so I know my son, he mottles really easily um, and he actually normally he's just mottled anyway. Um, but um, so they can sometimes model really easily with temperature and then yet not model with uh, sepsis, which can be quite confusing. Uh, we need to think about their comor comorbidities, which I mentioned earlier. Think about their drug history, cardiac history, uh, reflux history, whether they've got um, celiac disease, uh, autism. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, that leukemia is more common and can present atypically. Um, chest infections, ear infections, they've got children with Down syndrome have got narrow tubes all over and thicker mu mucus, so just lots more snot. Uh, which makes it, you know, results in, it just takes longer to get over these simple viral infections. Um, and then atypical presentations of um, serious illnesses. So particularly an example of um, you know, a child with pneumonia or you know, a severe chest infection, because of the low tone in their chest wall, they may not have the subcostal recession that we may see in other children. I mean, we should be able to see the tracheal tug, but obviously that's quite a late sign. So um, it's worth you know, ensuring that in your GP surgeries, if you have a pediatric SATS probe, to actually check, check the oxygen saturations. Um, and then the atypical presentations, for example, uh, there's been cases of pneumonia with sepsis presenting with diarrhea and vomiting instead of chest symptoms. Um, and as with any child, it's really important to talk to the parents, find out what's normal for their own child, they know their children best, and taking into consideration about the child having sensory processing needs. Um, to help with the communication. So when you are examining them, just taking more time uh, to explain what's happening next. Uh, so annual health checks, so this is moving on to adults. Uh, I've said until we did the research for this presentation, I didn't realize this starts at the age of 14. Um, so the key thing is, first of all, they need to be on the learning disabilities register to be able to um, be aware of them. Um, so routine blood tests, as I've mentioned earlier, for thyroid, uh, diabetes, um, assessment of their hearing and vision. It doesn't necessarily need to be a formal assessment each year, but uh, to talk about it. Uh, they're feeding, bowels and bladder. As I mentioned, they're more prone to um, constipation. If they are suffering with a bit of sleep apnea, they might be waking up in the night to go to pee. Uh, behavior, if they've come with someone else who can give a collateral history, that's helpful. But obviously, if they've come on their own, you can talk to them about that. Doing a cardiovascular examination is important, uh, regardless of whether they've had congenital heart disease or not. Um, uh, thinking about celiac screening where relevant. Uh, think about the endocrine system again, like I said, about diabetes and uh, the thyroid. There's, um, there's a stereotype that people with Down syndrome are always happy. This is not the case. Um, my son Dexter can get very grumpy. Uh, and and um, so obviously adults with uh, Down syndrome can still uh, can suffer with psychiatric and psychological issues as well. Um, with respiratory, as I mentioned, main, uh, the big one is sleep apnea, to specifically ask about their sleep and the quality of their sleep. And women's health, um, this was new to me as well, uh, women with Down syndrome can start menopause 10 years earlier than, uh, than typically expected. Um, so to, to consider that when they're talking about uh, possible menopausal symptoms, and we wouldn't think of it because the women's so young, but actually uh, women with Down syndrome can start their menopause early. So I'm hoping that my internet's going to hold now. Um, 
it's very easy to assume, like I said earlier, that because um, a learning disability is associated with Down syndrome, that that means that um, a child with Down syndrome will have an equal delay in all areas of their development. But actually what research has shown is that they have an uneven profile um, of social, cognitive and language development. So if we were to consider a typically developing child age six, their learning skills will therefore be within the same age as their nonverbal mental age, which would be six. However, for a child with Down syndrome who's age six, their nonverbal mental age may be lower, say four, because they have, um, you know, which will be linked to that cognitive ability. So if we say that was four, but not all of their skills, therefore, will be within that range of the four year old, or typically uh, the four. Um, and that's what's really interesting because of course this young person who's age six will have had six years experience of how to wow the public and smile at people in shops and engage and have those social skills um but what's really important is that by having an awareness of a learning profile we can therefore facilitate development and we can engage better and we can adapt the way we teach and support that child to learn to their learning strengths of course every child will be different as all children are there's always one that just foxes you sometimes but this profile mostly holds true for people um with um down syndrome and this um so if we think oh next slide please um about the learning strengths um there are characteristic strengths and of course it mostly holds true that everyone will be individual and therefore will have um varying abilities and improvements so um our children will have strengths in many of these areas. They're strong visual learners. Again, like all children, highly motivated by success, praise, and a chance to be visibly and palpably important, you know, to be one of the gang. Kinesthetic learning skills, so learning through doing, is a real strength for our children. Empathetic and highly socially motivated, which I think is a massive strength and something that we should all admire for somebody that has so many likely to have so many difficulties with their communication. That they're so tenacious in order to want to achieve that. Um, our young people will have um, strengths in terms of social understanding, knowing how to work a room. Um, daily living skills are often a huge strength for our young people, um, particularly if family and supporters have high expectations as I think it's fair for all young teens, um, but having those high expectations will lead to abilities because of course daily learning skills um, are things that we all learn through doing. So you're only gonna learn to make a spaghetti bolognese if you do it. No matter how many times you read a book, it's much more helpful if you learn through doing. Visual short-term memory is a massive skill as opposed to um, auditory, but that also means that our children are often very good readers, surprisingly, because they're learning through the repetition of seeing the visual representation of the word. So we encourage early reading skills um, really early for our children, um, and they often do very well um, with reading. Um, and again, a person who just wants to be part of the tribe, I think we all need that for our own well-being, and I think that's impressively important for people with Down syndrome. So factors that can hinder learning um, is likely to be the things that Anjali very helpfully went through and gave us more detail. So the impact that some of these um, health conditions can have um, through tone and things like that. So the hearing and visual impairments, um, speech and language needs, um, fine and gross motor, and then the um, associated conditions with um, a learning disability around auditory memory difficulties. Those difficulties with generalisation, reasoning, consolidation and then retention of the information. Um, so, of course, it is around um, ensuring that our children are given more consistent and very clear um, support. 
And then some of our children may have difficulties processing information that they're receiving from their senses and therefore coordinating their movement. And therefore they're relying on um, performing precise movements um, through being able to visualise and see what they're doing rather than knowing. Um, And again, this can all be difficult because of those speech and language um, difficulties and the verbal short-term memory. So it can mean that learning number skills um, is very difficult because, of course, number is an abstract concept. But, of course, you have to be able to remember the number in your head to count two on, don't you? So being able to present things like number using numicon um, and visual information can make learning number much easier for our own young people if we consider and we apply these skills and um, understanding that learning profile. Um, so next slide, please, and back over to you, Anjali. Thank you. So I'm just going to talk about reasonable adjustments in healthcare. Uh, so just to remind you, this is the Equality Act and Disability Discrimination Act that makes it our legal duty and requirement to try and make these reasonable adjustments. Uh, it's not just you know being nice. Um, so um, it's very important that if we do have a patient with Down syndrome, that they're on the Learning Disabilities Register because if they're not, then we can't even think about these reasonable adjustments. Thinking about if it's practical, trying to give more time for appointments. Uh, the second part is I found impossible uh, nearly, but trying to say less and actually counting 10 seconds to give them time to understand what you've said, retain the information and allowing them time to respond. Uh, as Alice has mentioned, the visual learners and visual cues, so showing what we mean. Um, you know, if we're talking about inhalers, having a dummy inhaler there or just uh, having props or even drawing pen and paper to explain what's going on during the consultation can be really helpful. Trying to ensure that our face matches our tone, otherwise that can be a bit confusing. Being really clear using you know, body language, gesturing and expressions to you know, convey the message and saying their name so that can be really helpful to try to focus their attention and get them back in the room if they've kind of minds wandered off. Uh, it's augmentative, augmentative and alternate, alternative uh, communication. This refers to sort of picture exchange, Makaton. Uh, Makaton, as many of you probably know, is sort of uh, based on uh, British Sign Language, but it's a sort of simpler uh, version of um, uh, sign languages for people who can hear and talk, but to aid communication. Um, so thinking about the appointment, um, is the appointment time long enough or, sh- you know, uh, is there going to be enough uh, uh, time in the appointment to get across what needs to be gotten across? Uh, and why is the appointment being offered? As I mentioned earlier, uh, children and adults with Down syndrome, particularly children, can have lots of appointments. Make sure it's worthwhile. Um, this is relevant to all people, but particularly uh, people with learning difficulties. You know, how can we make the experience better for the patient? Um, as Alice mentioned earlier, font size at least 18 in any, any reti- uh, written communication. Uh, and think about our signs in the practice. Um, are they accessible? Are they simple language? Are they you know, easy to read and easy to understand? Um, and having the leaflets and information ready beforehand to help them with their decision making. Um, and then not just us, but actually training the rest of the rest of the surgery, uh, staff training, reception, the admin team, giving them all these, uh, you know, teaching them all these tools so that they can also communicate with people uh, with learning disabilities better. Um, and of course, we have to think about uh, consent before the age of uh, 14 and com- uh, capacity at any, any age, whether their learning uh, difficulty can hinder their ability for uh, their capacity to make certain decisions. And as we all know, capacity varies from each decision and can vary from day to day as well. 
So with the right opportunities and support, just like anyone, people with Down syndrome can achieve. Um, so I want to show you some of these achievements. And on the left here, you have Madeleine Stewart, who's an Australian catwalk model. If any of you use social media, she has a fascinating Instagram account and really can show you um, that life that she's leaving, uh, living and the achievements that she has. Um, Sarah Gordy, who has an MBE, which means she's met the Queen. Um, she, of course, um, you might recognise her from a number of different British documentaries and TV programmes, in particular Call the Midwife. And then Pascal Ducan at the bottom right there, who won the Best Cannes, uh, best Actor Award at the Cannes Festival in 1996. Um, next slide, please, Joanna. Um, through to Lizzie, world record swimming holder for swimming, Max, a Special Olympic medalist. And this very handsome chap on the bottom right that I'm afraid I don't know his name, but I'm sure there are lots of young people swooning over him. And this image is taken from the River Island hashtag labels off a clothed campaign and I just think it's so iconic that it is about do expect greatness because our children are achieving whether that's 20 out of 20 in German spelling tests through to getting MBEs um, we just need to make sure that our children are getting the right support and that intervention and those opportunities at the right time. Um, I think it's really important um, to kind of show this so Anjali obviously comes from a medic perspective and I come from a social um, work perspective and so the two of us had some quite interesting um, ideas about disability and I think it's really important to make it quite clear that it's not one or the other it's kind of a sliding scale um, but I wanted to introduce the social model of disability so when we talk about the medical model and we take Dexter as our example um, Dexter, if you consider from a medical model, because he has that extra chromosome and therefore he has Down syndrome, that would mean that um, the problem is within him um, because it's, you know, it's about him. That's why he's got Down syndrome. That's why he's disabled. The social model, however, um, states that disability is a disadvantage or the restriction of activity caused by a society which takes little or no account of the people who have impairments and thus excludes them from society. Disabled people are those people with impairments who are disabled by society. So to apply that model to Dexter, we would say that whilst Dexter happens to have Down syndrome, that doesn't change who he is. He's doing all the things he's supposed to do in the right scale for Dexter. So he will walk when he needs to and he will have those independent skills when he needs to. But what disables him is those requirements for him to meet milestones, the expectations that we have upon our children to achieve things within a certain time um, and the pressures within sort of an academic society that our high achievers are those who have good grades as opposed to those who are kind, caring and well-rounded um, individuals. So it's just to give you that alternative um, slant and a different way of viewing it. So the problem isn't within Dexter, but it's how we as society view Dexter's needs. Um, and again, I think to, to add to that, we are very good now that if we were to go to a post office and we somebody with a learning disability went in who used Makaton um, to communicate, if there were steps on the way in, you can guarantee there'd be a ramp to make sure that it was accessible for somebody with a physical disability. But if that person with a learning disability uses Makaton and therefore they're going to sign, I want to buy a stamp, please. Um, would the postmistress understand? Probably not. But that disability isn't with him. He's not unable to communicate. That person with a disability has lots of communication strategies. What disables them is that the postmistress doesn't know how to communicate. And that's kind of this viewpoint of what more can we do differently? Um, so having a learning difficulty means that you're unlikely to enter the world of work. In the UK, only 20% of people with Down syndrome of working age have any kind of job. 
And similarly, nine out of 10 people have never invited a person with a disability into their home. And that's taken from a research um, project by Scope. And we all need to feel that we achieve, and that is true of people with disability as well. So you'll get a copy of this poster, Positive Language, um, and it'd be great if you print it and you share it with your colleagues. Um, when I was a little girl, my dad used to say, sticks and stones will break your bones, Alice, but words will never hurt you. And I think now that we're recognising that perhaps those words are the most powerful things that we have, and they're the powerful weapons, and they can also save. And I think that the words that we use literally will shape our world. So if we talk positively, about a person with Down syndrome and we refer to them as a person who happens to have Down syndrome and we see the person before we see their condition and we talk about it in that way, our partner, our children and our family will view the world in that way. If we talk about a Downs person and we see the person as their condition and we don't see anything beyond that, then that will change how we view that person. Um, and I think it's also really interesting when we think about screening tests for example um, where we talk about risk it always used to be risk five years ago or associated with the risk of having a child with down syndrome but actually that word is just a probability and it's just a choice word to describe probability and of course you're at risk of getting coronavirus of having a car accident but it is a chance to go on holiday to win the lottery um, and of course that's all it is it's just a chance. So when we use that language, which the NHS has now adopted and does use in all letters to families, it really makes it a much more powerful and um, a positive view on describing that probability, because I'm sure Angeli will tell you that Dexter was the most fantastic probability um, and chance that happened. And then our next slide is for any questions. Super. Anjali, Alice, thank you for a presentation full of um, inform, information, enthusiasm uh, and passion. So thank you. Um, we've got a couple of minutes. I haven't seen any uh, uh, questions in the chat yet. So um, people watching this, please do um, pose any. I, I wanted to just ask you on Anjali about the annual health check. Um, obviously, Dex is too young to be um, having those as a regular thing, but I'm thinking more of our adult um, patients with uh, Down syndrome. Yeah. Have you yeah. got any advice for GPs about setting them up or um, how we should do those in the in the best way for the person? Yeah. So I mean, at the moment in our surgery, uh, the um, uh, learning disabilities annual health checks are done by the nurses, and then the the doctors pop in and do the physical health check. I mean, ideally, I think it'd be a, a combination of, of the nurse and the doctor trying to do it like a joint appointment. Um, you know, giving them information beforehand to bring someone with them who, you know, again, can give a collateral history if that's helpful. Um, and yeah, just trying to provide as much information beforehand about, especially if it's their first check, about what's going to happen in the check. Um, and, you know, as we said earlier, about, you know, the easy to read information prior to that, allowing enough time. Um, and, you know, the simple things about communication, you know, being aware if they've got any sensory needs and explaining things clearly about what's happening and why we're doing things, which we, again, should be explained to all patients, really, but actually making that clearer and not making any assumptions about, you know, uh, someone might understand why you're listening to their chest, but actually explaining that bit more detail. 
Uh, yes, I've noticed the Wessex LMCs have a fantastic uh, page on the annual health check as well. So I'll pop that in the uh, the chat. Um, I'm just looking. We've had uh, Camillus uh, saying thank you. Brilliant overview and great food for thought. I, I absolutely agree, Camilla. I think um, sometimes in general practice, it's nice to actually give some real thought to something. And I, I've written down, I love the font 18. I've, I'm going to go back to the practice and change that immediately for all our invitation letters because as you say there's other conditions that um, people who have Down syndrome have that we need to think about. Uh, the growth charts, um, I wasn't aware, where do they come from, those red books with the um, growth charts? Do you know so you can get them from the Down syndrome medical information um, information group so if you if that a search they're available on there. Generally um, NICU you can get them from the National Down Syndrome Association but they're generally they should be given to all um, at the point of diagnosis and popped in um, so they're really good they also have a summary of the surveillance um, because of course for most of our children that would be done by a community team but it's always really helpful just to have it as a quick reference in um, an appointment just to check that things are being done yeah, um, yeah so there's actually a table like uh, Alice said there's a table of what age what not what needs to be done uh, as a childhood surveillance as well okay. yeah great and we've had um, another comment Sam um, thank you for the presentation I enjoyed it very much in a former GP practice I used to look after an adult rest home with elderly down syndrome uh, clients who were 55 to 60 because the 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 age that patient uh, well people are living to are, is much greater than than it was which is fantastic um, also about next stability stability as I volunteer as a coach for disability sports yeah I was interested to hear about the x-ray Anjali that you're suggesting is the advice that um that people shouldn't use trampolines who have down syndrome uh, so it's, it's just mainly with caution so it's basically you've got to take it from child to child um, I know uh, some uh, trampolining places have sort of, you know, there's been cases where children with Down syndrome have been rejected if they don't have a letter from the GP or an x-ray and so on and so forth. So it's going to be done case by case. You know, if the child is fit and well and doesn't have any uh, conditions or not had any problems in the past, worth, you know, they can talk to their community paediatrician if they're concerned. But if they've got no neck pain, no concerns, then, you know, they can use it, but just obviously with caution and just to be, it's more one of those things to be aware of that could be a problem rather than it definitely being a problem with uh, each child. And finally, I just wanted to think about the families as the, the people that live uh, live with this condition at home and that really important message that you've got about looking after the whole family because actually yeah. that's best for the uh, the person who has Down syndrome. Have either of you got any sort of last um, bits of information or resource that you could help us help those families? I think there's... So I think one of the best things I could probably recommend would be that you on the last slide, you'll see for our charity, all of our social media. Um, so I think if you do social media, say Facebook, Instagram or Twitter, it's always really interesting to see what some of our teens and we will share things that people are achieving and sort of best practice guidelines on that um, and having access to those sorts of things as well, just to see what our young people can and do achieve is always really good. Yeah, and as a charity, pre-COVID, uh, we used to have um, sort of coffee mornings and uh, stay and play, lots of opportunities and other social events uh, where families can come and meet other families. And it's a really supportive environment. I know, you know I've been to baby groups with Dexter where it can be a bit competitive, where actually we're, the, the charity is very much a supportive environment. 
um, you know, Alice helped me with a, in a, a DLA application form and just hearing from, and it's so nice to see older children with Down syndrome to see what Dexter might become, you know, uh, and it's a really supportive environment. Um, and we have a WhatsApp group for the mums, you know, so you can get advice on how to apply for this, that and the other, or just general advice. Um, so that's really, uh, really useful support, uh, support network uh, for you know, the local area. Um, but yeah, the Down Syndrome Association national website also for different areas has uh, links to uh, other local uh, charities for Down Syndrome support. That's great. Just get looking into the chat. Um, thanks for all the information provided. You're getting lots of positive feedback. Thank you to both of you. Excellent presentation. Uh, Carrie has said we use the Arden's template for the annual health checks. All the recommended checks are in there. We have a mix of residential homes and walk-in reviews. Um, I've just in the chat popped the link to um, the Wessex LMC's learning disability uh, pages. Uh, Danusha said thank you. Uh, thanks so much Anjali and Alice. A really inspirational presentation. I'll certainly take, um, oh, sorry I've lost that, I'll certainly take forward the importance of remembering to congratulate new mums of babies yeah. who have Down syndrome and also to use the term chance instead of risk when discussing screening. Um, all the best in your work. This has been the most enlightening presentation, thank you. Um, I, I really have to second that, I think that it, the, the way we use language is so important and it doesn't just apply to Down syndrome, it applies no, yeah. to so much of what we do in society uh, and I think Alice your presentation about the social model of disability and the passion that you put into that was really vital because it shows us that actually it's not the person with the disability it's the world we live in that disables mm. people um, so I'd just like to sum things up now because we're um, over time uh, and say thank you to both of you. Um, that was a really informative uh, presentation. Uh, it's challenged me to redefine stereotypes and I think that's really important. Those videos were absolutely superb and I'm going to share those in my practice. To talk about the medical side of things, Anjali, and to remind us about the red flags, including things like leukaemia. I hadn't got that on my radar. Um, the annual health checks we've talked a little bit about and it's great to hear that other GPs on the call are using that. And the fact that we've got the ability to train our staff and empower our staff to help um, both children and adults who have Down syndrome to really reach their potential. Uh, and definitely Font 18 is, is logged there as something I'm <laughs> going to change. Um, so just to finish, I'd like to remind everyone listening that the Wessex LMCs are running um, some superb education events that you can dip into. The next one we've got is on the 18th of November, and that's a half-day webinar that's being run, uh, and that's going to cover a range of things, including obesity, metabolic uh, syndromes. And then we're moving on on the 23rd of November, we've got Genetics Unraveled, uh, which promises to help people like me understand even more. Uh, Angie, it was a great great explanation of the chromosomes earlier thank you for that um, so I'll just uh, end by saying thank you for listening and very 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 big thanks to both Angie and Alice for taking the time today to talk to us so um, that's it for today thank you Wessex LMC's supporting you and your practice